you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it and be finding your place in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And as you're turning, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever noticed the strange similarities between adult children and their parents? Now, I'm sure you've probably seen those progressive insurance commercials that aired, I think, within the last couple of years or so. Um, As the commercial goes, there's a young couple who's being interviewed, and the wife has concerns that her husband is becoming just like his dad. And the tagline of the commercial said something along these lines, uh, progressive can't protect you from becoming your parents, but it can save you a bunch with home and auto. Now, you've seen those commercials. Those commercials are quite funny, but I think it drives home a point. Uh, Even though there are generational differences, I find it interesting just how much we become like our parents the older that we get. And it's often true both in the way that we look, uh, it's also true in the way that we even act. And one generation has a way of uh, impacting the next generation. That's true for both the good and the bad. You know, I've read where Roughly six generations are said to have made up the last 100 years of American society or American life. Uh, The greatest generation was the the tagline that was given to describe those uh, who were born before 1924. And they're called the greatest generation. They grew up during the Depression. Uh, They fought in World War II or stayed behind Uh, to work in factories and support the war effort, uh, the greatest generation. Uh, Following them, you had uh, what was known as the silent generation or the builders. And uh, that generation spanned from roughly 1925 to 1945. After the builders, you had uh, baby boomers who were born in the post-World War II baby boom as all those GIs came back home from the front lines of battle. And they were born really between the years of 1946 through 1964. Following the boomers, you had what was known as Generation X, born anywhere from 1965 to 1979, 1980, something like that. And then you had millennials. Uh, Millennials, which are now the largest generation in American public life, but millennials were born from 1980 to 1994, the largest generation in society now. Following them, you had Generation Z, uh, those who were born in the years of 1995 to 2015. And interestingly enough, uh, they're also being described as the last generation, which ought to be something that should cause a chill to come up and down your spine. When you think about the different generations, the differences in those generations, the way that um, one generation has impacted the next generation and that generation impacts the next generation, you know, the Bible tells us that that kind of thing happens. The Bible says that parents transfer their values, uh, both the good as well as the bad. They transfer those values from one generation to the next. One generation always impacts the next generation, whether it be in a positive way or a negative way. 
And that's why raising children is such a sobering responsibility that really has lifelong consequences. And what our children come to learn about the God of heaven, what they come to learn about life priorities, what they come to understand about things such as marriage and the family, they largely learn this through what they've seen exemplified in our lives as their parents or a former generation. I came across an article um, that was in Business Insider from last April that said that America's youngest generations are less likely to marry in their 20s than their parents were. Nearly 50% of baby boomers were married between the ages of 18 and 32. Roughly half of all the baby boomer generation were married between 18 and 32, while a mere 26% of millennials are married in that same age range. From 1970 to 2012, the United States marriage rate dropped 60% from 74 annual marriages for every 1,000 unmarried women all the way down to 31. And the decline in marriage rates among millennials, according to this article, um, it reflects a number of cultural shifts, not the least of which is a decline in religion, which has greatly impacted and shaped the view of the youngest generation's views of marriage and the family. And that same research also indicated that among the youngest demographic in American life today, there's a dramatic increase uh, known as um, in the category of religious unaffiliated or the nuns, the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Someone who's written a lot about this is a pastor down in Charlotte who's written many books. I read a book a couple years ago that he wrote called Meet Generation Z. His name is James Emery White. But in that book, he said this. He said, who are the nuns? The short answer is that they are the religiously unaffiliated. And their numbers are rising faster than any group. The number in the 1930s and 40s hovered around 5% of the population. Roughly 5% in the pre-World War II generation would identify as religiously unaffiliated. But by 1990, that number had risen only to 8.1%, which was only a 3% increase in half a century. But between 1990 and 2008, uh, which is roughly 18 years, the number of religiously unaffiliated nearly doubled. And the percentage went from 8.1% to 15%. And then within four years, from 2008 to 2012, it climbed to nearly 20%, representing one out of every five Americans who now identify as religiously unaffiliated. And for adults under the age of 30, now listen to this, it increased to one out of every three people. The youngest generation in our country one out of every three identify as religiously unaffiliated. No faith, secular humanism, uh, the religion of our day, that's what they've bought into. So you look around at what's happening in our society, folks, in a day where society seems to be unraveling at the seams, we need to look deeper than just the surface issues that are going on. 
Henry Blackaby's sons, Richard and Tom Blackaby, wrote a book on parenting in which they said this, parenting has never been an easy task. However, the world in which we're raising our children today contains unique temptations, pressures, and dangers unlike anything our parents could have dreamed of when they were raising us. We now live in an age when we desperately need God's help if we're going to be successful in raising our children to be godly young adults. You say, all right, well, how is the climate really that different? How has it changed uh, in our day? How is it different than it was in former generations? Well, consider these statistics about the family. Only 45% of children grow up in a home with both of their biological parents. And so where we've got so many politicians and so many leaders who are trying to diagnose the problem of society's ills right now, can I just say this? Perhaps the issue goes much deeper. Maybe there's, maybe there's an issue of absentee fatherism. 45% of kids grow up, only 45% with both parents. The current divorce rate in, the, in our country is at 46%. Every month, 282,000 students are physically attacked in our public school systems. The largest consumer of internet pornography is the 12 to 17 age group, and the average age of first exposure is 11. Now, folks, that's where we are in our country. This is just a small um, glimpse of the landscape that families are facing now. And I don't have to convince you, I don't have to work too hard to convince you that phones and universal Wi-Fi and social media have all dr drastically altered that landscape. Children today now face a barrage of cultural pressures that many of us couldn't even have imagined when we were their age. And more than likely, most of you grew up in a society that was respectful or at least neutral to biblical Christianity. But our children are growing up in a culture today that is becoming increasingly anti-Christian, that kicks against the Judeo-Christian ethic, that would say Judeo-Christian ethic is really one of the reasons why we're in the mess we're in. That's what, that's what many are saying even now. And yet we've, we're faced with this, we see this happening before our very eyes, and yet we know as Christian moms and dads, especially those of us who still have children at home, We've been tasked with this responsibility of raising sons and daughters uh, who know Jesus, who love God, and who walk uh, in his will. And so the Bible has so much to say about the importance of one generation uh, forming the next generation. One generation building the next generation and the responsibility that parents have to lead their children in the truth. And one of the most important passages where we, we find this emphasized in Scripture is here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, which I've had you turn to. So I want you to read with me there, beginning in verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now in this passage, um, Moses is speaking to the next generation of Israelites as they were on the threshold of really crossing Jordan and claiming their inheritance. This is the generation really that had grown up in the wilderness and for 40 long years Israel had had to wander around in the wilderness because of the previous generation's failure to obey and their lack of faith. 
Their unbelief in the promises of God led to them wandering around in the wilderness. And so now Moses is going back and he's reviewing the law of God and he's reminding this next generation of all that God had done in order to secure their redemption and all that he was doing to lead them into the land. Now I want to read this chapter in its entirety. I'm not going to have time today to work my way through all of this, but I want you to read this chapter and I want you to pay close attention as we read this to the emphasis that's given on one generation and its responsibility to build the next. Verse 1, the Bible says this. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. Now watch this. You and your son and your son's son. That's three generations of obedience there. You, your son, your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, Houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. Now, what God's saying there, he says, listen, I'm going to bring you in and I'm going to give you all of this as an act of grace. They would inherit the land as an act of God's grace. God would do something for his people that they didn't do for themselves. And he says, when you eat and you're full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God that you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. And notice the emphasis here. The emphasis is on serving God once they're in the land, being different from the pagan cultures that surrounded them. God intended for his people to be different, to be witnesses to their pagan neighbors. For the Lord your God in your midst, he is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And you shall not put your Lord God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. 
And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. Now watch this in verse 20. Listen to what the scripture says. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? In other words, when your, when your kids ask you a question, why are you the way that you are? Why do you believe the way that you believe? Why do you act the way that you act? What is it about the law of God, the worship of God, the fear of God? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. In other words, one generation needs to be able to tell its story to the up-and-coming generation. This is what God did for me. This is what God did for us. This is how the Lord rescued us from our bondage in Egypt. And so one generation has to speak from experience and, and bring up the next generation. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. And this is the word of the Lord. I really want to speak from this subject really today and the next couple of Sundays, building the next great generation. What is it that's really involved in building up the next generation? I believe that in this passage here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're given some important keys as to what that involves. Now, the word Deuteronomy, the name of the book of Deuteronomy, it means second law or repetition of the law. It's the fifth book of Moses, the fifth book in the Old Testament. And in this book, Moses really reviews the law that had been originally given at Mount Sinai way back in Exodus chapter 20. And he applies it to Israel's life in the promised land in which they were about to enter. Deuteronomy records a series of addresses that Moses gives to the second generation of Israelites as he seeks to equip their generation for their new life there in the land of Canaan. The older generation was to instruct, to teach the younger generation principles for godly living. And he says that the best place this would occur, occur is in the context of the home. As they are in the Israelite home, one generation was to pass the faith along to the next generation. And in this chapter, really there are three uh, important keys as to what's involved as far as building up the next great generation. It involves investment, it involves instruction, and it involves impact. So I really want to look at the first key in the time that's remaining this morning, and I want you to notice how it involves investing in the next generation. If we are to build up the next great generation, 
there within the context of our families, within our homes, it involves investing uh, in the next generation. And you really see this emphasized in the first three verses of this sixth chapter. Moses was clear in teaching the importance of worship to this second generation. And they needed to know all that God had done on their behalf so that they could then invest in their own children. And in the first five chapters of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses basically summarizes all that the Lord had done for his people. You go all the way back to chapter one, uh, Moses reminded them of how God had given them victory over the Moabites and how um, he had really... um, um, did this as an act of his own power, even though the former generation had refused to trust God and enter the land. You get into chapter two, Moses reminded the people of how God had sustained his people during their 40 long years of wandering around in the wilderness. And even during those years that were brought on by a former generation's obedience, they didn't lack anything. But God had provided all of their needs there in the wilderness. In chapter 3, Moses reminded his people of the victory that God had given them over their enemies, such as Og, king of Bashan, and all of his land and all of his territory. Chapter 4, Moses reminds them of the need for their obedience to God, how God had taken the initiative to reveal himself to Israel. And then in chapter 5, Moses reminds them of the law of God as expressed in the form of Ten Commandments. So in the Old Testament, there are really two chapters where you you see the Ten Commandments as they're given, the first of which is Exodus chapter 20, but Deuteronomy chapter 5, those same Ten Commandments are also given to the second generation uh, that's about to enter the land. And so now that that foundation had been laid in their minds and hearts, uh, in chapter 6, Moses begins to explain the right motives for obedience and why the people of God should honor the law of God. And it all had to do with redemption. Their obedience to God was born out of the experience of redemption. If they wanted the blessing of God on their lives once they were there in the land of promise, then they needed to know that their love and their obedience to God and whether or not they were leading their families to worship God faithfully, all of that was involved and connected with the blessing of God in the land. And basically, you could sum it up by simply saying this, the current generation must not fail in their responsibility to build up and invest in the next generation. And so Moses begins here in chapter 6 by calling on the Israelites It begins in their home. You've got to teach your children to love and worship God. That's what Moses is saying here in this passage. And so folks, worship, long before it's ever expressed in the church gathered, it's got to be expressed there in Christian homes. Worship has got to be taught at home before it will ever become even reality at the church. Now before you say amen to what I've just said, Uh, think about how difficult this is in today's generation. One of the greatest challenges that committed believers face in our day is raising sons and daughters who worship God while surrounded by a climate, a cultural climate that is increasingly godless and pervasive. This is becoming so challenging, especially as there are so many voices 
that are chiming in and vying for the attention and the minds of the next generation. A lot of Christian parents in the church today have inadvertently allowed their home life to be flavored and characterized by more of a cultural worldview than a biblical worldview. Our decision-making often has become based upon what's popular with the culture around us from cues that we've taken from the world around us rather than the Word of God that's been given to us. Charles Spurgeon had a lot to say about this. Spurgeon said that to neglect the instruction of our children is worse than brutish. He said family religion is necessary for the nation, for the family itself, and for the church of God. And Spurgeon said, would that Christian parents awaken to a sense of the importance of this. And so, again, this is so important. Christian parents have the obligation and the responsibility to shape the thinking, the thought patterns, the lifestyle patterns of their children that have been entrusted to them by the Lord God himself. And so parenting, not politics, not the classroom at school, uh, not the science lab, uh, not the children's wing at church, Parenting is the place of greatest impact and greatest influence when it comes to shaping the minds and the belief systems of the next generation, which means we've got to intentionally teach our children to be worshipers of God. We should never take for granted the influence and the stewardship that we've been given over their lives. And what our sons and what our daughters come to learn about God, they've got to see it exemplified in our lives and through the example that we put forth before their watching eyes. You know, Joshua would say something about this later on in Joshua chapter 24. Uh, He would say, choose you this day whom you will serve. Make a calculated decision. Make an intentional decision about who you're going to serve, how you're going to live your life, what you're going to live your life for. He said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's not up for debate, Joshua says. Uh, We're going to serve God. We're going to dedicate our home to the worship of God. We're going to build our home upon the foundation of the word of God. And so that's what Moses is encouraging here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says that the command of God that was given to them, to their children, and to their children's children. So to truly invest in the next generation, really it requires that we understand the importance of at least three things in our homes as Christian moms and dads. What are those three things? Well, the word of God, the fear of God, and the blessing of God. All right, so notice first the word of God. Uh, This is what um, Moses really emphasizes there in verse number one when he says, now this is the commandment. The statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land where you're going. So Moses saw the home as the principal delivery system for the transmittal of God's truth from one generation down to the next generation. And he says that the responsibility rested squarely upon mom and dad's shoulders. God intends for our homes to be saturated with the truth of his word. You consider what he says just a few verses later in Deuteronomy 6, 7. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. 
Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. In other words, as you're living out your life in the context of the family, all of your activities. If you were to modernize this, you could say whether you're driving down the road in the family vehicle, as you're gathered around the supper table having dinner together, uh, as you're sitting out on your back porch having fun and talking, talk about the Word of God. Saturate the minds of your children with the truth of what God has done in your life. Bind them as a sign on your hand. They need to be frontlets between your eyes. In other words, keep it in the forefront of your thinking at all times. Write these commands on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. That means let everybody in the neighborhood know where you stand as far as serving the Lord. Let them know your gospel witness. Let them see your life as it's different, as you're living out your faith, swimming against the stream of cultural opinion. So the Word of God is to occupy a prominent place in our homes, and the primary place where God's Word is to be taught is there within the home. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've got to sit your kids down on the couch, you know, three or four of them in a row, and you open up your Bible, and you stand, and you just preach to them like I'm preaching to you all today. Uh, It means that, again, as you're living your life practically, in regular conversation, you share from your own personal experience what God has done in your life, and, and, and teach them just the, if you've got small children in the home, teach them the stories of the Bible that illustrate the faithfulness of God on behalf of those who trust in him, all that he's done uh, to prepare the world, how he's created us in his image, how sin is our number one issue, and yet how God has solved the sin problem by sending his own son Jesus in the world as the savior for sinners. So the word of God, so I would ask you this question, practically what role does the Bible currently occupy in your own home? Is it something that maybe you give lip service to? Uh, Is it something that maybe you grab as you go out the door on Sunday whenever you are coming to church? Or does it occupy a very prominent role in your home? Everything that you do, the decisions that you make in your home, the way that you structure your home, uh, the priorities that you have established, the way that you use your money, your resources, what you watch, what you listen to, how you, how you live your life, is it all influenced by the Scriptures? Is the Scriptures your standard of authority? Is it what you've built your home upon? That's what Moses is saying here in this passage. So not only is the Word of God important if we're going to invest in the next generation, but notice what Moses has to say about the fear of God. He emphasizes this there in verse 2. He says that you may fear the Lord your God, you your son, and your son's son. So the intention behind the law was fear and reverence for God. They say, well, how does that square up with what the Scripture says elsewhere about God not giving us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind? Well, understand the fear that's being referenced here. When we talk about the fear of God, it's it's not fear in the sense of phobia, in in the sense of running away from God, but rather it's fear that would lead us to run to God because of who he is. It's fear in the sense of a a reverential awe, a sense of worship because of who he is. It's not fear in the sense of that which will cause harm, but it's fear that's associated with a healthy respect for something. 
the type of, this type of fear, it's, it's the opposite of sort of a nonchalant, disrespectful attitude. It's the fear of God. Understanding the weight of something. Understanding the importance and the priority of something. So fearing God means that we have such reverence for him that it has a tremendous impact on the way that we live our lives. Uh, It's respecting him, obeying him, submitting our lives to his word, worshiping him out of a sense of deep awe. And the Bible has so much to say about the fear of God. I know Proverbs, many of you in your life groups right now, you're in Proverbs, but Proverbs 1-7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Someone says, well, where does knowledge begin? Does it begin with the degree that the world can confer upon me and its institutions? Absolutely not. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord, this is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, you, You can have all of the degrees in the world but not fear God and really have no knowledge at all. You can have information, but you have no knowledge. Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One. This is insight. Solomon would say this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. This is why man has been created in the first place, for the fear of God, the worship of God, to reflect the image of God throughout the earth. And so Moses is saying here in Deuteronomy 6 that obedience flows out of and leads to a greater fear of the Lord in our lives. It's the recognition of all that he is, an attitude of deep reverence for who he is. And verse 2 says, that you may fear the Lord, you, your son, your son's son. And someone says, well, how exactly could three different generations live in the fear of God? Verse two goes on to say this, by keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. In other words, we impact our children in what they believe about God and how they respond as far as the fear of God is concerned through our own obedience to God. Do your children ever watch you uh, struggle in the area of your obedience to God? I hope that they do, and I hope that you use those opportunities where you've got tough decisions to make on their behalf, use them as opportunities, a springboard to teach them about God's faithfulness. And as they see you obeying God and walking with God before their eyes, what that does is it cultivates a sense of the fear of God in their own hearts. And folks, that's how we invest in the next generation, through prioritizing the Word of God and living our lives in the fear of God. But notice a third thing Moses emphasizes here, and it has to do with the blessing of God. The blessing of God. Man, The blessing of God is connected with obedience and it's connected with the fear of God and it's connected with belief and understanding the word of God because Moses says in verse three, hear therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them that it may go well with you that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So, The idea is when Israel obeyed the commands of God 
and then taught their children to do so, it would go well for them in the land that they were about to enter. Now somewhere around six times in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses refers to the promised land as a land flowing with milk and honey. Now milk and honey, that may not mean anything to you, but in this generation's thinking, I mean think before they'd been for 40 years, they'd been in the wilderness. Now God had given them manna, God had fed them with quail, God had given them water from a rock, but in their mind, I guarantee you, they're thinking, man, I'd like to have some of that milk and honey, Moses, that you're talking about. You want to put it in our modern vernacular? Uh, uh, Chick-fil-A and Krispy Kreme, okay? A land flowing with Chick-fil-A and Krispy Kreme. You've been living on bologna sandwiches for the past three months, but man, the time is coming when Krispy Kreme's open again, and Chick-fil-A, well, they're never closed except on Sunday, right? But the idea is milk and honey, this is an expression that describes the fruitfulness of the land, the richness, the fatness of the land. Milk was a staple, honey was a luxury, and so in describing the land this way, a land that flowed with milk and honey, the idea is that the people would be provided all that they needed. It was an expression of the blessing of God on the lives of his people. And notice how it's all connected to generational faithfulness. Generational faithfulness leads to multiplying impact. Now, when one generation failed to take their responsibility seriously, it would have a negative impact. And you don't have to read too far in the Old Testament to see how this was the case. Because once Joshua and his generation get into the land that's flowing with milk and honey, God gives them victory over all of their enemies. They've inherited uh, what was theirs. We're told that another generation, by the time you get to Judges, the Bible says another generation arose that did not know the things that God had done for his people. So perhaps Joshua's generation was so busy fighting battles and making a living for themselves in the land that they neglected to make a life and to instruct the next generation in what really led to blessing. Now folks, that's an important word right there. Because the thing is, as Christian parents, we can become so content in living our lives, going to work, enjoying our hobbies, making a living for ourselves that we really neglect what constitutes a life. And the Bible says in the New Testament that as believers, Christ is our life. Which means that he is not something that is to be put on the back burner, but is something that is to be at the forefront of our thinking in everything that we do. That's why Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells believers to set their mind on things above. Not on things here on the earth. Um, not on um, earthly things and earthly problems and earthly struggles. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things here on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then he goes on to talk about how we're to put to death the sinful deeds of the body, all in the power of the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ who lives within us now as believers. And our children are to watch us do this. 
So, so think about how generational faithfulness leads to impacting the next generation, investing in the next generation through the word of God, the fear of God, and the blessing of God, which is ours in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, Paul says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. An illustration of this, I, I've told you this before, but Susanna Wesley, you're familiar with her name. Susanna Wesley was the mother of 19 children, nine of which died before she did. Her husband, his name was Samuel, Samuel, and uh, he was a clergyman in the Church of England. Due to some bad financial decisions that he had made, uh, he was always in debt, and he even spent time in a debtor's prison for his debt. But even though she was faced with a lot of adversity in life, Susanna Wesley dedicated her life to instilling a sense of worship and godly fear into the lives of her children. And, and I've read her biography. She was an absolutely remarkable woman. Born in 1669, um, she married Samuel. She was 19, and they were married for 44 years. And together they had 19 kids. Samuel was frequently gone on business, and so that left the management of her household to herself and the education of her children. Well, it was left up to her. And so she knew her fair share of difficulty in life. The Wesleys suffered illness and sickness, poverty, the death of nine of their kids. On two separate occasions, their, homes, their home burnt down. And through it all, Susanna Wesley accepted the will of God for her life and placed herself and her family in the hands of God, completely trusting him. Instead of complaining about all that she had faced in life, she lived as a surrendered believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she taught her kids not only the scriptures from the scriptures, but also through the experience of her own life and her own daily trust in God. In some of her writings, um, this woman who endured so much in life said this. She said, help me, Lord, to make a true use of all disappointments and calamities in this life in such a way that they may unite my heart more closely with thee. In another place, she said this, we must know God experientially. For unless the heart perceive and know him to be the supreme good, her only happiness, unless the soul feel and acknowledge that, she can have no peace, no joy, but in loving and being loved by him. Now that was her life. One of the greatest moves of God's spirit in modern history happened in the 1700s. It's often referred to as the Wesleyan revival simply because its roots can be traced back to the ministries of two of Susanna Wesley's sons, John and Charles Wesley. At the beginning of the 18th century, England was in a spiritual mess, much like the mess that we now find ourselves in in America here in 2020. But it can be said without exaggeration that John and Charles Wesley's efforts, whether it was their evangelism and ministry to the poor and the ostracized of society, literally it changed the world. God changed the world through those surrendered men. And at the same time, it can also be said that who these men were 
and all that they did in their lives had absolutely everything to do with the remarkable woman who raised them. Folks, let's not neglect the importance of building up the next generation. How do you do that? How do we invest? You do it through prioritizing the Word of God in your life as a parent. Through living in the fear of God as a believer. And pointing your children to the blessing of God that's found only in a life-changing, life-giving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him personally this morning? That's, that's the question I want to leave you with. Do you know Christ as your personal Savior and Lord? I'm not asking if you've, if you've been religious. I'm asking if you've had an encounter with the God of heaven, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ changed your life saved your soul and gave you his eternal life you can't pass on to the next generation what you don't possess yourself so can I just encourage you right there where you are in an attitude of repentance and faith confess your sin to God cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save you believe that he died on the cross for you that God raised him from the dead Confess him as your Savior and Lord. Place all of your faith, all of your trust in him. Would you do that today? Lord, in the strong and mighty name of Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, you've been with us through difficult seasons in life. You've brought us through. Like that former generation of Israelites, Lord, you brought them out of Egypt so that you might bring them into the land of promise. And you've done the same thing for us in Jesus Christ. You've brought us out of a spiritual wasteland of lostness and brokenness. You've saved me and you've forgiven me of my sin. You've placed your Holy Spirit within me. And I'm now able to walk in the blessing of God which is in Jesus Christ as a believer which means that I have something now that I can pass on to my two children. And as believers, we have something that we can pass on to the next generation. God, we don't want to fail in our responsibility. As Christian parents, Lord, may we not be so busy making a living that we neglect what life is really all about. And God, I thank you for these times of a slowdown that we've had over these past few months where things have been closed, where we've been at home a whole lot more than before. Because you're reminding us, Lord, of the importance of the home. And if faith can be lived out at home, then, Lord, it can be lived out anywhere. So, Lord, my prayer this morning is that you take these truths, seal them up in our hearts, do a work in our hearts and lives and in our homes for Christ's sake. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen and amen.